0: Welcome to The Shadow of the Valley, the show that tracks the troubling trends of technology today through contemplative conversations with actors of conscience. I'm your host, Tall Leeds, your guide through the digital darkness we dare not speak. Join me as we plumb the depths and seek the roots of post-human dilemmas. Together we'll explore key concepts, seek clear insight, and cut through the distractions to find solutions to some of our toughest challenges. In this week's episode, I sit down with Daniel Ressler, CEO and co-founder of Utility API, an energy data software service based in the San Francisco Bay Area. He also volunteers for a privacy group known as
1: Restore the Fourth. It's not your right to privacy. It's society's right to privacy. The goal of privacy is to allow people to organize in private and so that they may voice opinion and cause political change and stuff like that. It's a, it's a safeguard against authoritarianism.
0: We'll take a deep look at surveillance and data privacy, the threats they pose to clean energy, and the cybersecurity risks posed by companies who store personal data. It's time to step into the dark. So let's begin. One of the central ills of the digital age is the issue of privacy. Thanks to Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal, the issue has resurfaced in the public discourse. In the years following 9-11 and the Patriot Act, Americans decided they were more or less okay with giving up some privacy if it meant they could prevent another terrorist attack. Since then, the number of ways governments and corporations can spy on and profit from surveillance or the collection of personal data has proliferated beyond what we could have imagined. In 2013, NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden risked his life to publicly reveal the breadth and depth to which the U.S. government was spying on its own citizens. The capabilities they had, the exploits they stored, the data they were collecting and storing were exposed in a story that shocked the world. And yet, despite this, we still stand silent while the government spies on its own citizens in the name of national security. And companies like Facebook encourage us to overshare so much about our lives, often without realizing it. Our daily trips to and from work, our favorite places to have lunch, the music we like, or the shows we watch. We freely give that up without thinking twice about the consequences. In many cases, we don't really even have a choice and it's all in the name of profit. We're in an era of what techno-sociologist Zainab Dufekci calls surveillance capitalism. One increasingly high-profile concern that emerges from this is targeted propaganda and manipulation. Thanks to Facebook's recent scandals and Robert Mueller's special investigative team, many Americans are being exposed to the depth and breadth of such operations. The psychological profiles constructed through the data Facebook collects on users allows ad buyers to target very specific groups of individuals with fake news stories and political ads. And, as Cambridge Analytical whistleblower Christopher Wiley recently revealed, this data is being used to sway voters across the democratic world. Privacy, as Edward Snowden has told us, is far more important to the functioning of civil society and the development of our own humanity than we currently realize. And privacy is not a right that any individual can surrender. It must exist, period. Or, as we're starting to see, there is no civil society. But the real kicker is that now the privacy we initially sacrificed to the name of safety is needed more than ever to maintain national security. As the Rand Corporation's senior information scientist, Dr. Rand Waltzman, recently told the Senate Armed Services Subcommittee, quote, every a-hole on the face of the planet has a complete and open and unrestricted access to our public social media data. Everyone except the United States government, unquote. He then urged America and its allies to take steps to protect themselves from cognitive hacking, a sort of psychological propaganda for the Internet age. Privacy is the kind of issue that upsets people when you bring it up in polite company. It's a tough conversation to have. It's scary, it's complex, it's nuanced, and it's awash in technical elements that are difficult to comprehend. It's something we'd rather not think about, usually because we can feel kind of powerless about our ability to change anything about it. But if we're serious about retaining any kind of ownership over our technology and regaining our humanity, then it's what we have to do. We have to talk openly and honestly about it. And that's exactly what I'm going to do with this episode's guest, Daniel Ressler. Quick note, Daniel and I sat down in late December 2017, months before we knew of the privacy issues to come. Nevertheless, much of what we have discussed here has only become more relevant in light of recent developments. I hope you'll keep that in mind as you listen to our interview. Daniel, welcome. Howdy. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, I want to start off by asking a little bit about the uh, work you do. It seems to span quite a few different areas that aren't often thought of as connected, um, but they're fairly important in different ways to understanding the challenges of our time. So namely, uh, green energy um, and uh, privacy. So... um, I wanted to, if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment to uh, tell us a little bit about what it is you're doing and um, how you see the two as connected, or perhaps not connected.
1: Sure. Um, well, I'm going to start off a little bit by uh, giving a little bit of background on on myself. So uh, I grew up in, sure. in Texas. Um, I got a chemical engineering degree from the University of Texas at Austin, and so naturally I... Uh, it, like most chemical engineers from UT Austin, when they graduate, I moved to Houston. Um, so I, uh, I started working for a, I was a project engineer for a environmental testing company uh, coming out of college. Uh, the company was called Clean Air Engineering. And it we basically measured source emissions, which is basically the pollution from smokestacks. So we literally... Uh, climbed smokestacks, stuck a probe in the smokestack, and measured the chemicals coming out. So we were kind of the front line mm-hmm. of, uh, of environmental regulation. So okay. I did that for a while. So that kind of basically sets the precedent of my default is in energy and environmental work. Um, the privacy stuff or the privacy advocacy stuff actually came after college um, and after um, after the environmental work, so it's kind of the mesh of the where I are. I'm kind of focusing um, the mm-hmm. the uh, after after working at Clean Air for a while. Um, I kind of had wanted an adventure, and so that's where I kind of got into entrepreneurism and the startup scene. I'd been programming yeah. just kind of as a hobby my whole life, so. Um, I just wanted to try that out as a career. And so I joined a startup in New York for a couple of years. Um, Unfortunately, you know, like most startups, it didn't work out, but um, it really kind of gave me the confidence to be able to, you know, when I see an opportunity go off and and not be afraid to jump off the cliff and start start a company solving a problem. So um, with that experience, kind of the mesh of the Um, environmental work and the entrepreneurial um, experience, I uh, came back and I wanted to get into kind of the next generation of energy. Right. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know much about it. Um, And, and so I just jumped in and got a job at a normal um, project development uh, uh, company. Uh, We mostly focused on commercial uh, solar for energy energy and energy efficiency for school districts and cities in California. Um, I learned a ton about the industry, uh, built some projects, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I kept running into a data problem at the company. And it was around this time uh, that I started uh, getting more active in the privacy uh, the privacy sphere. So um, uh-huh. it was kind of Later on at the, at the startup and starting to get back into green energy, um, I, I started to uh, become more active in privacy, uh, primarily because of uh, the, the amount of mass surveillance that was starting to take off at the time. So, um, and Snowden really kind of like catalyzed that.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, I just want to clarify that you, you, you mentioned a, uh, a data problem. Could you, is, are you at liberty to talk yeah, yeah, about yeah. Uh, the
1: nature of that problem? So um, one of the big things, and this is going to be pretty high level, and then I'm going to go in a little bit more into specifically what utility API does. But um, as a general okay. thing, if you, if you think about the way that the energy transition will happen, right, is um, we need to switch sources of energy over the next 10 to 20 years to something else, right? And that's a huge transition, right? That's 87% of the global energy sources have to switch to something else in a couple of decades, right? Half of a generation. Um, That's an incredibly huge undertaking, and it has to happen a lot quicker than um, assets will be uh then assets will will pay off, right? And so if I have a coal power plant mm-hmm. and I am uh I am paying for that over 40 years, right? If all of a sudden I can't use that coal power plant anymore because of competitive forces in the market or or the energy transition happening, I all of a sudden have a stranded asset, right? And so right, like, yeah. I I'm left with the bill for half of my asset because I haven't paid it off yet. And so that's Uh the biggest concern in the energy transition right now is that we're actually moving too quickly, that we will have stranded assets, which as uh, somebody who is interested in preventing climate change, I could not care less about. Um, But that is one of the biggest issues. And so um, innovation and new technologies have been very slow to adopt in the existing incumbent energy industry. Um, so utilities have been slow to adopt new technologies or clean technologies, even though they're more economical, because they are worried about stranded assets. Um, uh-huh. Sort of sunken costs. I'm getting there.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, but yeah, but just right. setting that up, there's a sort of sunken cost uh concept there right like we've already right. invested so much in coal like we want to capitalize on our investment
1: right? and okay. also i mean there's a great uh, report from the uk that talks a lot about uh, the carbon bubble so if uh-huh. we want to hit the paris agreement the two degrees celsius we can only pull up a quarter of the proven reserves of fossil fuels in the world right and so that's proven uh-huh. reserves that's not even like unproven reserves um If we want to hit three degrees, which is where the Pentagon says we start killing everybody um, due to, you know, food shortages and mass migration and all this sort of crazy stuff. um, Three degrees, you can only pull up a third of the proven reserves. Right. Okay. So like it's there is going to be a huge amount of stranded assets on the books of existing companies, existing fossil companies. And so that, um, that's going to be probably the biggest issue in the energy transition or the biggest like friction point is stranded assets. Okay. So that means that, um, the grid or the current incumbent utility operators, um, want to slow down or, or, or are cautious or risk averse around, um, around adopting new technologies. And so what happened, and I learned this when I moved out to California after the fitness startup, was that all of the clean energy technologies are just starting to sell directly to consumers and bypassing the utility entirely, right? And so that's what Uh the rooftop solar revolution is, is because they found it. Hilariously, it's easier to sell 10,000 solar... Systems to ten thousand customers than it is to sell ten thousand solar systems to one customer of the utility. So right,
0: so there's like this kind of alternative grid thing emerging where people are, are collecting their own energy uh, off of the grid. It's kind of like where Tesla's Powerwall is kind of uh, exactly, uh, being, exactly being
1: used exactly. And, and so, Tesla's
0: Powerwall being that series of of um, of different of uh, batteries of a very high high. Um, and efficiency batteries uh, that would that
1: were designed to be used with uh, rooftop solar and so on. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So okay. um, you have a lot of <clears throat> distributed energy companies. Um, the the technical term for these companies is called DERs, distributed energy resources. So if you ever read any okay. like energy industry news, DER is an acronym that you're going <clears> to <throat> see a lot of because it's kind of the okay. next wave of energy, and so. Over the past decade, um, distributed energy resources have really taken off, right? And yeah. if I am a building and I am looking at lowering my energy costs, right? Somebody is going to come to me and say, "Hey, if you switch to batteries plus solar, you're going to save a whole bunch of money on your energy bill," right? And the next question right. out of my mouth is going to be, "Well, how much money?" Right? And And to answer that question, you need to take a look at their historical energy usage data that they have been paying. You basically need to take a look at their historical bills and see what they've been paying, Mm -hmm. right, in order to calculate how much they would save by installing this product, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, That friction point is what I experienced at this uh, uh, solar development company in California when I moved there. Um, So I was in charge of putting together the proposals, um, the RFPs, for various school districts and cities across California. So say I'm a school district Mm -hmm. and I have 20 schools and I want to get a quote from a solar company on, you know, how much I would save by putting solar on some of those schools, right? And which schools, right? And so putting together that proposal and calculating out, you know, what the savings profile would be based on the past usage, getting the original data set. Of the historical data for those twenty schools really sucked. It was incredibly uh-huh. hard. It took six weeks, um, and it was just an incredibly painful experience. And it slowed everything okay. down. Okay, right? Because and that's where your that's where yeah. Is so that's it? where your company comes in. Exactly, <coughs> and so that's where my company yeah. comes in. Is we basically make it easy to uh, <clears throat> download and parse a customer's utility data in order to do a feasibility analysis or to prove savings after an asset is installed. So if I have solar installed and I'm in school district, I want to see what my current savings profile is to know whether or not I'm doing something right or doing something wrong or the system's working or it's not or whatever. And so that ongoing monitoring is another part of it as well. So it's called asset management. Um, Got it. But the okay. point is that we automate the process of collecting utility data for managing DER deployment, so okay, that's a very technical. So you're working.
0: <laughs> yes, no, but I think I think it's quite clear from what you said. So you're you're involved in collecting energy data, energy usage data, uh, all in this uh, attempt to make uh, solar power essentially um, uh, economically uh, incentivized for uh, large consumers of electricity. And um, And small. I mean, mean half of our business is commercial. Large and small. Okay.
1: Our business is commercial.
0: Okay. Got it. So, um, so basically, yeah, that's your, your programs are looking to, uh, calculate current usage in order to predict, uh, savings.
1: Is that accurate? Yeah. So we basically, we like to say that we do the half of data science that everybody hates, the collection and cleaning. Got it. Okay. So, okay, um, so you're quite familiar with, with data collection and yes. and uh, these kinds of things. Okay, so. The big thing to note about energy data is it's never really been available before. Um, uh-huh. It's mostly been, like, if you think of your historical utility data, that's just bid on your bills in a database or in a mainframe somewhere in a utility, right? It's never been really okay. accessible. Um, and with the adoption of distributed energy resources it's starting to have yeah. to be in order to properly run a grid because in order to get to 80 90 percent penetration of renewable energy that's all intermittent generation and so your utility is going to need to talk to tesla to operate your power wall in order to balance the grid right flexibility uh-huh. is the big key thing and distributed energy resources are a key factor in balancing an intermittent or high penetration of renewables grid. And so energy data is going to have to be flowing from party to party Aha! when it was not okay. previously. And so what I'm trying to do at Utility API, um, like what our mission is, is our mission is going to, is partially... To set the precedent that consent is required in order to access energy data. So, uh-huh. I mean, if you look at the history of different data sets and how um, different data sets are made available, you have, for example, yes. medical information, and that requires a huge amount of consent, and it's very, guarded. Right. right, right. And so you and there's and
0: there's and there's major because there's major consequences if those get exactly. into the wrong hands,
1: right? Yeah, there's okay. major regulation behind it, all that sort of stuff, right? And then you right. look at credit card transaction information, and there's practically no, you know, consent required. And so... Right, but then we have issues like what happened with Equifax uh, exactly. last year. Exactly. And so yeah. your credit card transaction history can be bought and sold for without your consent, right? And so right. energy data is something that has never really had any sort of question a regulation because it's never really been made available or it's never really been transacted. And so we are at the advent of determining which path or which road we take with this data. And Utility API's mission is to make sure that it is a consent-informed, driven process, much like HIPAA um, or medical information, instead of something like browser history that is bought and sold online all the time. Uh Does that make sense. Okay,
0: so yes, it completely makes sense, and I'm really glad you went through that because now I think what you did is really make it clear how um, environmentalism and privacy issues are connected in, in a way, way that people, people normally, normally don't think about. Um, and yeah, it takes uh, ten minutes worth of explaining to get there, but <laughs> it's true. It's true, but it's a it's a really important payoff, um, especially like if you're. Uh, You know, environmentalists are kind of more focused on things like, you know, maybe social movements or uh, maybe you're on the side of actually, uh, you know, the regulation like you used to do or, um, you know, actually going and doing reforcing projects and things like that. So these, you know, privacy, while you might be concerned about it as a citizen, you don't necessarily think about it as an environmentalist. But here you are saying um, we need to think about that if we're if we're going to be helping the environment.
1: Right. Yeah. So that's right. what we focus on at Utility API is the secure authorization and consent for sharing energy data. Um, so so that's important. The classic question is, why, is, why is the, does that matter? Uh, why is energy data something that I should care about? Um, right. And the first reason is your energy data, especially with the advent of smart meters, is incredibly revealing about your private life, right? It uh-huh. when, Whenever you see 15-minute intervals and you see an uptick during the middle of the day, is that because your husband or wife is you know, coming home in the middle of the day without <laughs> telling you and possibly thinking right. about yeah. somebody at home, right? Or sure. if sure. your grandmother uh, makes tea at 2 p.m. every day and one day that energy spike doesn't happen, you know, should you call an ambulance or you are growing, but, or especially
0: combined (laughs) with other, especially combined with other metadata, you can, it can start to to paint the picture of what's going on in your life. So this is not necessarily that you're going to get everything just out of the energy. Uh, I guess, suppose that could happen to a certain degree, but, um, but without that kind of a privacy, um, you know, combined with all the other kinds of data that's being collected, suddenly this, this richer picture of who this person is and what they're, you know, what they're, uh, trying to do comes into question, uh, or comes into, into clearer view. Uh, especially if you start to, um, you know, look at, uh, you know, go further and further out in in terms of, um, you know, your, uh, your, your viewpoint, right. Um, yeah, when you look at the whole system and you look at the whole grid and you see all these different patterns. And, um, yeah.
1: I mean, so and energy, energy usage and so incredibly on. In, follow, it correlates your behavior fairly well. And so you can yeah. gain a lot of behavioral information off of energy usage data. There is a company yes. um, that uh, works with fast food chains. And they monitor their energy data. And it's very easy to tell when an employee is staying after hours or something like that in order to, I don't know, do something shady. And so it's incredibly valuable for a fast food chain. And it's not energy related at all. It's not like the goal of this company is not to necessarily reduce their energy usage. It's to monitor for, you know, rogue employees. (laughs) Right. Yes. Okay. So, Um, uh, so,
0: okay, (laughs) there's a lot of great, uh, forks where this can go from, but, um, I want to, uh, I want to kind of pull back a moment and then maybe we'll come back to this, um, because I want to put this in the context of, uh, what Edward Snowden, uh, came out, uh, and, and spoke about back in June, 2013, um, with regards to, um, uh, mass data collection and as a, as a part of a surveillance program. Um, and, and, um, so it's, it's a little unfortunate, but still some people will think, uh, you know, what, what's, what's the matter with that? Like, if I have nothing to hide, why should I care? And, um, I think what you just said kind of highlights that. So I want to like present that as a way for you to continue. talking about what we are talking So let's, let's put that in the context of what he talked about. So, um, and, and perhaps also we can throw in, um, you know, what may or may not be going on with Russia, which we, we, are not totally clear on at this point in time as we're doing this, um, this, uh, uh, this interview, but there's obviously those allegations of, of interference and, uh, and cyber
1: warfare going on. um, um. So there's there's a couple of things that I wanted to that I'd like to kind of touch on around that that area. First of all, to address the kind of like I have nothing to hide, so why should I care? um yes. question. I the a lot of people try to um, try to argue or, or or rationalize that by saying, you know, oh, well, you know, everybody has something to hide, blah blah blah. Um, but I generally think of it as being the wrong question to ask is my general response is, well, I don't grant the premise of the question um, primarily because I don't think that you it's not your right to privacy. It's society's right to privacy. The goal of privacy is to allow people to organize in private. And so that they may voice opinion and cause political change and stuff like that. It's a it's a safeguard against authoritarianism. Um and so you're so saying you're saying you the, the framing give up your of it. Right to privacy. It's not your uh-huh. right. It's as right. As an individual. As an individual. individual. Right. So you're just because it's a sarcastic. collective right. Congratulations.
0: Right. <laughs> you have your 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 due privacy whether you want it or not. Exactly. It's like because your you can't right. – it's kind of like a, a societal – right. It's a society. It's a basic societal need. It doesn't it, – it, it's, it, it's kind of a, a red herring to look at it
1: as if it were some sort of individual right. Exactly. Kind so, of besides the um, point. Okay. It's not yours to give up. So you can't voluntarily give up your right to privacy because you have nothing to hide. You have it whether you have something to hide or not. Um, right. It's there for people who do have something to hide. Um, primarily Uh to prevent or to allow political change to happen. And so that's one of the areas where I like to focus is training political advocacy organizations on um, how to ensure private communication and organization. So the main thing Uh that I do for Restore the Fourth is I volunteer to train or help um, advocacy organizations in private communications. Now that's not all of mm-hmm. the first door the for does, but that's what I do specifically. Um, yeah so for example, I um, helped train uh, this one of the branches of the Sierra Club to uh, use secure messaging and how to be aware of unencrypted communications. <clears throat> Primarily because the FBI spies on the Sierra Club whenever they are organizing pipeline protests. So right, yeah. I mean, it's privacy is necessary in order to organize political activity.
0: Yeah. So there's no essentially, and and this is what Snowden often says too. But to boil it down to a few words, there's no civil society without privacy.
1: Correct. Right. Okay. So you can't right. rock the boat. Without privacy,
0: right? Okay, perfect. Uh, well said. Okay, so um, okay, so that's the basis that we're that we're starting from. Um, so now let's go into let's kind of elaborate on the consequences of uh, of, of these a little bit uh, into some areas that maybe people know a little bit less about, uh, particularly um, the cybersecurity realm, uh, with regards to say um, well anything from criminal actors to state actors getting access to this kind of data and the sorts of things that, um, they might be able to do that would be detrimental, uh, to both individuals and groups, um, as a result of having access to this data. And also let's make sure, make sure we keep it in the context of recognizing that, um, you know, once it's out there and available, it becomes, um, you know, very difficult to clamp down on, right? There's there's yeah. um Yeah.
1: So okay, so, let's
0: uh I'll let you talk
1: now. <laughs> sure, absolutely. So there's yeah. there's a couple of points um that I'd like to touch on that. First of all, um I kind of I'm pretty cynical on the culture right now in regards to uh cybersecurity, um for a couple of yeah. different reasons. Um and also, I'm also fairly cynical on the, um, the culture of the government in regards to protecting or, or, or looking at cybersecurity. Uh, one of the big things that happened in the nineties was that cryptographers and the NSA actually got along fairly well, where, uh, there was a famous, um, uh, a famous uh, incident where the NSA, you know, submitted um, several various primes to uh, to the cryptography standards body. And um, they looked at it and they thought it was a backdoor, but it actually was hardening or making it harder to break the encryption. Um, so uh-huh. it was back in the 90s. Um, the, and for those the, of us out there that, that aren't familiar, what are what are primes? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, just uh, various numbers. So in cryptography, you have various numbers that um, you pick in order to do your encryption. And okay. they submitted some numbers that some people thought were were broken, right? If you pick the wrong number, you can break the encryption. Um, okay. But it turned out that uh, cryptographers at universities later figured out that those numbers were actually making it harder to break the encryption because they were chosen uh-huh. better. And so uh-huh. okay. um, it turned out that, you know, the, the signal, uh, the, the intelligence apparatus was um, actually helping out the private sector in order to make it more secure. Okay. And so it was, favoring, yes. it was favoring defense over offense is just the general thing. it was hey, we, have, we want American businesses to be secure so they don't get hacked. Okay, so let's help them out. Even though that comes Makes at the sense, cost right. of us making it harder for us to hack these American organizations or, or these organizations as a whole, we're, we, we still count it as a net gain if they don't get hacked by others, right? So they prefer defense yeah. over offense. Um, right. That changed after 9-11. Where you had a huge amount of influx into right the the intelligence apparatus to be able to collect as much information as possible right to find the needle in the haystack um, right and the attitude changed pretty dramatically um, in to favoring offense over defense and so If you find some sort of exploit in an American business's um, uh, apparatus, so for example, if you find a way to hack into the DNC email servers, are you going to tell the DNC? No, because you want to keep that exploit to yourself and possibly use it in the future if you need to, right? So the attitude, the general culture in the intelligence operations nowadays is I want to keep exploits that I find secret because I favor or I value those exploits over the value that the business would lose if it were exploited by somebody else, right? So it's a trade Right. because right. there's no such thing as a golden key to give just you access to an organization and not anybody else, right? Right, yeah. And so, yeah. Once once does, the code's broken, it's broken, and anyone exactly. with that key can. So even Russians can, get in. can break into it. So if the Russians find it, and so hoarding right. exploits has become kind of the norm, as opposed to reporting exploits. So right. that's very frustrating as an American technology business owner because, right? In all likelihood, so like, so I just would love just uh, uh, yeah.
0: Just to, slow you, just to kind of pause here for a second and make sure everyone's with us. Uh, so a next point would be like a backdoor to your iPhone, for instance, right? So that uh, somebody could get into your iPhone, probably even possibly even remotely, and you would have no idea, but yet they would be able to say, listen into your calls, or yeah. I'll look at, you know, the kind of uh, sites you're browsing through your phone, what kind of apps you're using, so on and so forth.
1: Yes. They would be able to. So it's basically an exploit is something that gives you access to something that you should not have access to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so.
0: So they're collecting all of these for all these different devices and all these different uh, uh, kinds of technology that we use, and they're just storing them. They're not telling the uh, they're not telling the uh, the, the companies the that they have that that this is a problem. They're just sort of hiding them away in some sort of database where they keep all of them uh, in case they need them for some sort of spying purposes. Right. Um, great. Okay. And so then so, what what happens, it, what, what's happened from there, I'll let you go ahead and, and, and explain what, what hap- has happened from there.
1: Yeah. And so there is now a gigantic rift, at least uh, in in most internet, especially in the Bay Area, a big rift between the intelligence and the government, the intelligence apparatus and the government um, for an incredible amount of cynicism because they know that the government does not have their back, right? The government is actually trying to find exploits in their systems and will not tell them about those exploits when they find them. And so we're on our own as far as the US um, technology industry. And it's very frustrating um because you know that Russia could hack you and the NSA could have already found that exploit and didn't tell you.
0: Right. And and furthermore, uh there was a news item, I believe, pretty recently, uh, where they found that uh those those servers, those databases where um the NSA holds those those exploits had been breached. Is I Are uh, you familiar with that?
1: I am not familiar with that, but Absolutely, that would not be surprising. Just because, I mean, if Snowden can walk out with tons of information, it seems like internal security is pretty lax, or at least not favored. Again, that kind of just further um, further exemplifies the offense over defense culture. Right. I don't. I don't
0: remember the, the name of the article off the top of my head, but perhaps in the in the, in the show notes, <laughs> I can put that in there. For those who are interested, um, so uh, okay, so we have we so we understand. Okay, so this is why uh, privacy and uh, unwarranted search and seizure and and mass surveillance. This is why these are all problems beyond the sort of obvious uh, things that we could that we would you know uh, imagine. It's it's more than uh, just people collecting your your you know your your dirty photos or, uh, you know, listening into your calls and things like that. It's, it's, uh, it's wider, uh, there's a, there's a wider security issue, uh, in terms of, yeah. um, our, our social systems and how people could, uh, exploit them. And we actually even get into the criminal element, how people could, could do that. But, um, I think that, I think what we said is already kind of, you can kind of extrapolate from there, uh, quite a bit. Um,
1: Uh, Yeah, so there's two other points that I wanted to touch on around um, surveillance. So um, the first one is uh, the general theme in most uh, technology companies nowadays is that they don't consider data a liability. Um, Interesting. So when you collect data on users, you try to collect as much as possible because... You want to use all the latest, greatest, sexy technologies like AI and machine learning and blah, blah, blah. And there's not really any downside to it currently. Um, So if you get Equifax and you leak or you get hacked and all of your data gets dumped to the Internet, you still don't go out of business. Right. There's not a consequence to getting hacked. Yahoo, got yeah. all of their email hacked, and they didn't really take that much of a stock yet. So there is not really any sort of consequence to collecting data. Um, and that's right. unfortunate uh, because the other thing is that as the Snowden, re- or, uh, Snowden leaks uh, revealed, the government is actively looking for sources of data, Right to soak up. Mm -hmm. And so if you collect a lot of data on your users, you are a target. So that counts for not just private companies, but also local and municipal companies, right? Yeah. Yeah. So your city with their database on, you know, license plate readers or video cam footage from their cop cars, right? Their police car cameras. Right. Yeah. That will that is currently and this is one of the things that Restore the Fourth is particularly focused on is local data collection that is then being shared with uh, federal data centers. Right. All of that is being fed yes. into things like facial recognition engines and all of that sort of thing. So when you go to a protest, you know exactly who these people are and when they were seen last and their last, you know, six months worth of movements across the country. So um, that is an incredible thing that we're focused on at Restore the Fourth is particularly on the getting all of these data sets into the government's hands is kind of the trend. Now, companies um, generally uh, don't really think about that whenever they start collecting massive amounts of data. But as the Snowden leaks revealed we are starting to see that you know pretty much all of these major tech companies and all the data they scoop up is being made available for data mining by the government involuntarily yes. or voluntarily right 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 so it's not necessarily a voluntary thing by the tech company right google's data centers got you know sniffed by the NSA when they directly tapped the link between the data centers right
0: Right. So it's not that the government is directly going out and collecting this data with the, their face in front on it. It's more like they are uh, sort of using the data collection. They're just sort of like sapping, you know, the the data collection efforts of your Googles and your Apples and your Amazons and so on in order to put it to their own purposes.
1: Yeah. So there's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the tech activist uh, He's uh, Michae Siglowski. Um, he has a couple of talks online, but one of them is called uh, Haunted by Data. And it talks about uh-huh. how data should be considered a toxic asset instead of a, uh, or, or a liability instead of a value add asset, right? You should want to right. collect as little as possible because it's dangerous to collect more. Aha. Uh-huh. And so that's kind of a uh, philosophy that we kind of live by utility APIs. We view data as fairly toxic, and so we try to handle it with care.
0: And uh, ex- explain that a little bit uh, for, the, for the companies. Why, why does it become uh, toxic?
1: Uh, uh, is it because, yeah, go ahead. So we consider it toxic primarily because we, in our terms, don't claim any ownership over it. Um, It remains the property of the uh, utility account holder. And so when it's on our systems, it's basically under their control. They can control what they want to do with it. Um, If they want to share it with X company because they want to quote from that company, they can do that. But we do not have the right to do anything else with it. So we can't aggregate it or sell it or anonymize it or anything like that. It's their data. Um, right. And that restricts us in what we can do, obviously. And that's, we consider that a good thing primarily because we don't want to, we want to have it on our system as little time as possible. Like if you're a homeowner or a business owner and you want to get a quote and you need to share your data with that company in order to get the quote, once you get the quote, it should be gone, right? That should be done. It shouldn't stay on our servers. And so it doesn't. Right, it's a we're a very mm-hmm. transactional oriented thing. We're not a data like data hoarding business. Um, okay, and and that sort of mindset really puts us in the attitude of when we get data, you know, we want this transaction to be done and over with and move on with our lives. And it's great because it really frees you up from having to worry about handling it in the future or leaking it or whatever, just because you know it's going to be gone in a short period of time anyway. Aha. Uh-huh. So, so it's kind of like a liability thing in a sense. Yeah. No, we consider data a liability. Um, yeah. That is pretty uh, it's rare. Just, in it's the just you entry. have to.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's like you have to take care of it. You have to put all this this kind of effort behind maintaining it and protecting it and yeah. ensuring that it, it it's able to. And then also, there's issues because the data might not be accurate, and there's all kinds of. Yeah, and, oh and, my God and so, yeah, and so
1: forth. you don't want to build a solar system of a certain size and it have to be the wrong size
0: okay so okay it's interesting the way you frame that because it may seem like maybe one of the saving graces in this is that the toxicity of data might ultimately backfire uh, on these forces that are trying to wield it
1: for some sort of uh, extra power is that, uh, is that
0: uh, fair to yeah say? exactly
1: so if Tech companies all of a sudden start treating data as a liability. The government won't have as much data to scoop up. Right. Okay. So that's one thing. interesting. Um, the same thing goes for local cities and states. Right. If I am a uh, traffic light camera, you know, vendor for a city, and the city has a policy of not keeping the data around for very long, right? That means that I have to delete the data. And so the you know, the Fed, federal government doesn't have access to historical camera light data for a city because it gets deleted after right. a certain period of time. Or deleted right. whenever traffic violations don't occur or whatever. Right? And so
0: Right, but 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 vice hours. versa, it could also be it can also be a, li- a toxic liability for a government, say, yeah. uh, in terms of how other state actors could then take that same data and use it to manipulate uh, that country's
1: population. Correct. Either through through cyber attacks or... Worst case scenario stuff happening nowadays, where you've put so much emphasis on offense and haven't put any resources into defense, and now you're getting hosed in defense, right? Right. So you're just getting exploited left and right, and your population's getting manipulated left and right, and it's because you didn't put any resources into defense and shoring up your defense. And so exactly. private sector is trying to catch up, but it's not anywhere close to the level of resources that you would need to fend off something like a Russia.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, interesting. So so there's an argument here now uh, from a, um, a a sort of uh, national security perspective uh, that, that this is a, this should be an issue as well. Absolutely. This should be something yeah, that no, we're no, I mean, paying attention a bit to. bit
1: about national security. And in prior to but it's to, but like, now it's
0: kind of like the tables are kind of turned whereas yes. at first it was like oh we need to break your privacy in order to secure you now it's we have to secure your privacy in order to protect you from uh, larger state yeah. actors
1: right because if we have access to your information then Russia will have access to it is generally exactly. the attitude that should be taken so yes in general i favor or I, I agree with the pre-9-11 culture of American businesses are more valuable being secure than they are when uh, with us knowing everything about them.
0: Aha. Interesting. Okay. That's really great. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, so I think we're getting close to the end of our time. Um and uh, I think we've covered a lot of what we uh, wanted to cover, but i um we, we, we in private we've spoken uh, a little bit about um, a concept that I just want to maybe bring up again to to close our, our session here and um, we, our, our, there was an interesting point that you brought up in that discussion about um uh about the the newness of digital technology and how, um, essentially, you kind of alluded to this a little bit in terms of the fact that there's few consequences. But but basically, it's that um, we're so new to these technologies and not enough uh, has gone wrong with them in a in consequential ways for people to sort of have, you know, focused in on it and uh, said that this is really a problem, we have to step in and do something about it. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe, if you, if you recall that, that part of the conversation, or, and if you could maybe uh, pick up on that and expand a little bit on that idea for our audience, because I thought it was really important to keep in mind, uh, just sort of that kind of added like a nice global perspective to where we're at historically um, with digital uh, technologies and their, uh, their sort of pros
1: and cons. Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, I going back to a little bit of on my background, right? I'm am originally a chemical engineer, right? And right. and I did a co-op for a year at a major uh, chemical plant in Houston, and so um, I'm very kind of like my my roots are in classical engineering, right? Hard engineering. Are yeah. Hard asset engineering, I guess, and and so like I'm not a technologist by default. I'm an engineer, um, classical engineer by default, right? Got. It. And, yeah. And the thing that always sticks out to me is the huge disconnect in respect for quality between most other t- fields of engineering and software engineering, um, and. Civil engineering or mechanical engineering or chemical engineering, you have to be correct, right? Because if you're not correct, a chemical plant blows up or a bridge collapses or a car fails and crashes into a bus or whatever, right? And so you have life and death consequences in most other fields of engineering. You don't have that nearly as much in software engineering except for very, very few areas, right? And so uh, there's a classic article uh, from Fast Company back in 1996 called They Write the Right Stuff. It's one of my favorite articles. And it's about how NASA writes software. And they have, in their history of their software that they've written, they've only found, like, it's uh, 420,000 line long, has just had one error in each program. So, in the history of the <laughs> software. And it's wow. a team of 260 men and women um, who write this software, and it takes them an incredibly long time to write, but it's perfect for all intents and purposes. It's reach-level quality. <laughs>
0: and right. I mean, and in comparison, we, we all know, we've all encountered software that's completely buggy, that's full of all kinds of workarounds that we have to do just oh to God. be able to use it in the intended way.
1: Yes. Um, and the article ends, uh, the most important thing that the shuttle does, carefully planning software in advance, writing no code until the design is complete, making no changes without supporting blueprints, keeping the comp- or keeping completely accurate record for the code are not expensive. The process isn't even rocket science. It's standard practice in almost every engineering discipline except software engineering. Right. So right. Um, I come at this pr- the perspective as quality and, 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 and good engineering are a solved problem, right? They are solved problems in other fields. We know how to do good engineering. The problem is that we're not willing to spend the money on it. Because right. and nobody's going to die if you, Facebook goes down for a couple of hours.
0: Right.
1: right, the world might actually get more productive. <laughs> but like, if utility <laughs> <to die>, API <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. goes down for a couple of hours, nobody's going to die, right? right? Only in space shuttle software will people die, right? And so, or aerospace. Um, right. And so, we have to f- start to feel pain in order to demand that we spend more on software engineering, or spend more on quality. And so we're right. starting, I feel like we're starting to get there, but like a whole bunch of bridges collapsed and a whole bunch of people died before we started enforcing bridge regulations, right? And so right. Like we're just at the start of an engineering field that has not really felt the consequences of society depending on it in order mm-hmm. for it to actually mature enough to have the level of quality of other engineering fields. And so, right. for example, I think that we're starting down that road, and the main consequence so far is losing an election because of shitty software. So, and also <laughs> right, yeah. training for people, right? A lot right. of the hacks depend on human stupidity. They depend on somebody clicking on a suspicious email, right? Right. And so improper training for how to properly use technology is a big aspect as well, which is why I focus on advocacy training, right? Because I don't want advocacy groups to fall victim to stupid phishing schemes. Um, Right. And so we're just at the infancy of that, but we're starting to actually see a lot of the consequences of us not putting enough time and resources into properly building good systems um so losing an election is the first one of the not the first one of the major consequences in recent times that we have seen right and mm-hmm. so there's yeah. there's a lot of articles on how you know voter registration um databases have been hacked and we're not doing anything about it or at least not currently and so yeah there's there's we're still in the bridge collapsing a lot of people dying feeling the pain sort of phase we're not yet to the right. hey we actually need to do something about this phase <laughs> uh-huh. it'll probably take <laughs> hundreds of years for us to do that right it took it took bridge builders hundreds of years in order to do that so Interesting. um i guess we're, we're that's that's my kind of perspective being kind of an outsider to technology you know coming in it from a yeah. from a you know, a perspective, perspective like, yeah. engineering is a solved, like good engineering is a solved problem in many other fields.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Well, Daniel Ressler, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. Um, this has been a very insightful talk. Uh, I think we've all learned a lot today about uh, privacy and uh, the connections between uh, energy and uh, and data and privacy. Uh, in the near future, and I uh, thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you'll come talk to us again. Uh, you have, there's so much more that we could de- definitely talk to you about and and ask you about, and I'd love for you to come back on the show sometime. Uh, so, so thank you for being here, Daniel, and uh, that wraps it up for, for this episode. Uh, stay tuned for the next one, and hope to see you guys again soon. Take care. Thanks for joining us on this trip through the shadow of the valley. If you'd like to learn more about Daniel or his work, please go to utilityapi.com or restore the fourth with the numeral 4.com. Thanks to Daniel for agreeing to sit down with me for this interview. Our theme music was generously provided by Bly, B I E L E. You can find her at SoundCloud or at SaraBly.com. That's Sarah with an H, B-L-Y.com. Additional music was provided by Michael Garfield, host of Future Fossils podcast. You can also find him on Patreon and Bandcamp at michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com. That'll do it for this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Share it with any friends or family you may think enjoy them. I've been your host, Tal Leeds, saying keep going.